Hello and welcome to another great episode of Finding Peaks. I am your host today, Brandon Burns, Chief Executive Officer for Peaks Recovery Centers here in Colorado Springs. And for those of you familiar to the show, you know we've been tracking the Natural Medicine Health Act, which was passed this last election uh, here in the state of Colorado, also known as Proposition 122, that moves the state of Colorado away from prohibitive drug laws concerning the use of plant-based psychedelic medicines by first decriminalizing personal possession, increasing access to supervised professional services, and prohibiting local governments from banning licensed facilities like Peaks Recovery Centers and services as permitted by the measure. If you're not familiar to the topic, you can check out past episodes like episode 74, where we first sat down with the coalition director for Proposition 122, Kevin Matthews, and discussed at length the law's intent and direction. We further sat with other industry thought leaders, such as Dr. Scott Bienenfeld and Dr. Dana Lehrman on episode 70, 78 to talk through their perspective and the value proposition within the measure, at least the, in the way that they see it. We've even looked under the hood of treatment programs like Beyond.us in Mexico, founded by energetic and passionate Tom Fiegel on episode 88, where we discussed how ibogaine treatment in particular works within inpatient settings. Plant-based medicines serve as an innovative tool for the behavioral healthcare industry that, as an industry, and as we've talked about on these episodes, has lacked some type of innovation for quite some time while running thin on its capacity to, for example, shift the direction of the overdose epidemic we face here locally in Colorado, but certainly across the country. Not to mention the ongoing toll of distress perpetuated by society, social media, and day-to-day -day hardships that continue to weigh heavily on Colorado's family systems, our military members and veterans, and culturally across America. At Peaks Recovery Centers, we take great responsibility in the future delivery of these medicines and see this opportunity as a profound, innovative intervention that can, among many other things, support individuals better navigate their personal hardships, such as trauma, in a more effective manner than the historical delivery of monotherapeutic approaches, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, or medications such as SSRIs, SNRIs, and the treatment of depression, for example. And today we continue this discussion with attorney Ishmael Ali, the Director of Policy and Advocacy at MAPS, or the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. As MAPS Director of Policy and Advocacy, Ishmael advocates to eliminate barriers to psychedelic therapy and research, develops and implements legal and policy strategy, and supports MAPS governance, nonprofit, and ethics work. Ishmael earned his JD at the University of California Berkeley School of Law in 2016 after receiving his bachelor's in philosophy from California State University, Fresno. Ishmael has also previously worked for the ACLU of Northern California's Criminal Justice and Drug Policy Project and Berkeley's Law International Human Rights Law Clinic. Ishmael is licensed to practice law in the state of California and is a founding board member of the Psychedelic Bar Association. He also currently serves on the board of the SAGE Institute, contributes to the Chakruna Institute's Council for the Protection of Sacred Plants, and participates on the advisory council for the Ayahuasca Defense Fund. He has also previously served as chair of the Students of Sensible Drug Policy Board of Directors. Ishmael is further passionate about setting sustainable groundwork for a just, equitable, and generative post-prohibition world. So I'm very excited to invite him onto the episode today. So let's dive right in and learn more about this innovative movement ahead of us. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I thought, oh, that's in Colorado. That's where all <laughs> totally. this is happening at. Uh, and uh, I couldn't be more dead wrong about that now, and I'm aware. Uh, but if you could explain for the viewers what the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or as we've been utilizing the acronym MAPS, is, and uh, what are some of the major successes you've been witness to during your time at MAPS, uh, you know, for example, that can be a positive shift in political momentum mm -hmm. within communities, you know, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. So <clears throat> MAPS is a 501c3 nonprofit that was founded in 1986, which puts us, I think, at our 37th anniversary this year. Um, and it was founded uh, shortly after the criminalization of MDMA, in part to um, bring both education, awareness, research, and create 
safe legal access through medical, cultural, and other contexts to MDMA and other psychedelics. So it started really as an educational research organization, um, has operated that way for some time. And I would say the kind of policy advocacy angle has been sort of baked in from the beginning because of the idea of it coming out in response to and in reaction to um, a, a, a movement that was within the, the kind of traditional war on drugs as we understand it, the kind of move toward criminalization of MDMA. Um, the, in 2013, 2014, MAPS founded a public benefit corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary called the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation. And that entity for the last decade now or so has been doing a lot of the clinical research and other drug development work needed to take MDMA through the FDA approval process. And so for the last, you know, the studies actually started quite a bit before that, but for the last, you know, 20 or so years, one of MAPS's flagship projects has been to work with MPBC to take MDMA through the FDA process um, with the hopes of having it approved as a treatment for PTSD. Um, one, and that's what a lot of the media that people have seen about MAPS is for. Um, and mm -hmm. just very briefly, I can say that we recently completed our, our second phase three study, awesome. which is to say that the research phase of it um, has closed. And now we're in the process of preparing the application to submit to FDA in the hopes of, you know, potential future approval. So that's some exciting stuff that I'm happy to go go more down that rabbit hole. And what I'll say in the meantime is that while all that's been happening, a lot of the work that I get to do because I work on the on the map side, the 501c3 side um, as director of policy, a lot of what I get to do is uh, keep abreast of, track, and be navigating and advising on some of the other things that are happening in parallel to that medicalization process. So there's one process I just described, seeing this with other psychedelics too, including psilocybin and some others, where there's a process of attempting to take it through the FDA process. And the FDA process is really meant for, you know, it's best served for single, easily replicable molecules that are, you know, in the kind of traditional pharmaceutical framework. And that's something that I think the psychedelic assisted therapy modality somewhat challenges, or at least expands, where you have this kind of interaction between both a drug, a substance, and then a modality, a human-driven modality. So that's the medicalization side. What I've been very lucky to do over the last bunch of years is work a little bit more outside of that realm. So looking also at state level and federal efforts and also international efforts toward decriminalization, regulated adult use, religious use, all the stuff that falls kind of outside of the medicalization sphere. So those things obviously interact a lot from a policy perspective, and we can go down that rabbit hole for sure, especially as we talk about 122, which is a great example of like where you see some of those clashes. Mm -hmm. um, but the core idea there is that MAPS has both a focus on this kind of medicalization process as well as other formats of engaging with um, legalization and progress in that sense. The other maybe big area in addition to education and policy that I'd like to note um, that MAPS is really focused on is also harm reduction. Um, some people are familiar with the Zendo project, which is an on-site crisis response program that has worked with festivals for the last decade or so, um, which I think just over a decade now, and um, was recently spun out into its own nonprofit. So it's now becoming an independent entity for the first time. And um, we work very closely with them as well as with others to both create trainings and basically kind of acknowledge that um, even with whatever potential psychedelics may have uh, for mental health, for individual growth, for spiritual practice, so on, um, that there are risks. And that whole mm -hmm. idea about having like a robust harm reduction program is to acknowledge that those risks exist mm -hmm. and to do our best to incorporate safety crisis response mechanisms into that. And I think we don't talk about this so, so much in the psychedelic world, but, you know, bringing it back around to peaks, like I do feel like that there's an under understood risk profile of psychedelics. You have the the kind of hysteria machine that are like, they're going to take scoops out of your brain and you're never right. going to be the same again. And then you've got the other side where people are way too excited about this, the silver bullet effect, as I like to say, like right. psychedelics are going to fix everything. They're going to fix society. They're going to fix you. They're going to fix your mom. Like everyone's better. So I feel yeah. like that the truth obviously is somewhere in the middle. There are a lot of mm -hmm. amazing potential benefits for psychedelics and there's real risks. And I think that part of the idea for MAPS is like, how do we hold this whole story? We're not part of the hype machine. We're not part of the hate machine. We want to be able to say, 
education, research, um, harm reduction, policy reform, all together, all needed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, amen to all of that. Um, you know, and, it, and it's so true, you know, as you get into the sort of Pandora's box here of, of, of the movement and the history of all of this, it is, a, it is a massive discussion. And one of the things that, you know, I, I, I think that we could just, you know, go into here as well too, this is one of the things that I was talking about in front of the Senate Finance Committee. Um, uh, and while I was advocating for Natural Medicine Health Act and, you know, basically just encouraging, don't make amendments, don't ruin the beauty of its original language, that type of thing was, it had me thinking about how the addiction treatment industry Going back to the 70s, when insurance companies um, or, or you know uh, managed care systems started paying for these services, mm -hmm. and there was this original debate about well whether or not the Western sort of medicalized approach to this you have to have the master's degree, the PhD, the LPCs, all the licensures, all those things, right. and that that person was better suited to treat the individual suffering versus what is no longer language, thank goodness, um, they called them paraprofessionals or individuals who had experiences with use and recovery. And so the debate yeah. became, is the paraprofessional better suited or the actual professional in the Western medicine sense of things mm -hmm. better suited to treat the individual? And I think that debate still kind of rages on today in a variety oh, of different yeah. contexts. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and, and so one of the things in the, uh, Senate Finance Committee that was kind of of an issue is this um, fear about the non-Western medicalized person delivering these psychedelic medicines to the individual. But for me, it makes a profound amount of sense that the history and the path and the experiences matter greatly here. I think we have an incredible amount to learn from our indigenous communities, especially around the concept of reverence and how we deliver mm -hmm. these medicines at the end of the day. And um, I didn't intend to go down this path, but uh, you were talking hey, about it. I think it's, it all roads, <laughs> all roads are you know uh, available to us here. And uh, so, just curious uh, before we maybe dive into some of the the questions that we originally you know talked about, kind of what your view is and how we might open. Because one of my strategies has been let's let's open the hearts and minds of individuals out there around this potential without making it seem like you stated a silver bullet. It is. Mm -hmm. uh, complex and how we deliver this and how we manage the systems and so forth. But I do think it's really important to highlight that this, these medicines have been used for a really long time and with great reverence and with great um, professionalism, even without that sort of Western lens. And just curious for the viewers out there how you might bring them closer to that mm -hmm. as a really important part of this project. Yeah, this is. Um, like the other example you gave, this is totally something that the debate is going to rage on probably long after we're both gone, because um, it's a big question that we're constantly navigating, which is like, you know, put another way, as, as, if I understood you correctly, is like, how do we reconcile the fact that there's this highly professionalized approach to healthcare and how healthcare delivery often occurs in the United States, at least. And then with the other side of it, which is a, and you didn't say this explicitly, but that, well, there's there's the kind of traditional indigenous practice angle, which you just mentioned. And I would say also um, in between those two is kind of a peer support angle where there's something that's been happening for years around peers just supporting each other outside of professionalized context. And yep. as far as how we hold all those realities, the I'm a little bit, little bit of a broken record about this. So <laughs> sorry if you've heard it already, but one of the things that I, I've been thinking a lot about in this last year or so, a couple of years, is the possibility of harmonizing different policy approaches and acknowledging that different people have different needs, which means different contexts, um, different kind of safety requirements. Of course, there's some consistent things that we'd like to see across all of those examples, like it would be nice to see something like quality control for products. Mm -hmm. Like one day it would be, you know, maybe you've talked about this, like, you know, the erratic nature of um, underground drugs and what's being sold is, is a problem. It's a risk factor. It's a significant risk factor for people. So it would be nice to see something like that. One, one question that goes a little bit more to the edge of what you were bringing up is 
well, what about training? What does it mean for someone to be trained to offer these services? That's an edgy one, because on one hand, you've got the hyper-professionalized approach like you were describing, where like, oh, you have a license, you have a certain level of training, your board says you can do this, and if you get, you know, if you get sued for malpractice, then you have a defense, because you have insurance mm -hmm. that will cover you. That's like, you know, like maybe peak protection, you could say. And then you've got like a whole bunch of gray areas below that point or kind of on the spectrum there where people have different levels of protection and different levels of training, different levels of expertise. And I guess like, I mean, this is its own very niche or kind of nuanced conversation, but I guess what I would say is I would like to see different points of entry for different types of access. So I think that, for example, if someone has a number of comorbidities, a number of diagnoses, and they've tried a lot of different kinds of medications that haven't worked, just as an example, then maybe that person should have more professionalized, specialized care if they're trying to do something like detox or wean off of some sort of drug that they're dependent on or so on. Like maybe more comorbidities, more complexities, higher professionalization, maybe, maybe. On the other side of the spectrum, I think that, you know, for the average 20 something year old who has an average, you know, average to normal trauma history, like they should probably be able to just rent a cabin and go eat mushrooms with their friends. Like that should probably be fine. You know, mm -hmm. so I feel like that should also be on the table. And as far as like the other kinds of use, you know, one of the things about bringing in traditional indigenous practice into the equation is that I think that there's been a conflation with um, traditional practice and traditional healing. What I mean by that is that not all traditional or indigenous use is healing use. We've kind of pigeonholed psychedelics a little bit in the Western conversation in the West because of how excited we are about therapy and about therapeutic applications. And there's a lot of potential there. But what that means is that the healing, the healing lobby has sort of monopolized where it's like, if we're talking about psychedelics, we gotta be talking about healing. That's, yeah. that's where we're at. And that's great because honestly, I think it's maybe from a social perspective, healthier for us, you know, for the average teenager 20 something or whoever, Who's stumbling upon information with psychedelics it's probably good that the first thing that they get nowadays a lot of the first information they get is like this is a thing that can be used for treatment like this is a thing that should be cared about that you should be careful with da, da, da. like that's probably a good thing the flip side to that is when it's too relied on and suddenly people are like this is like we were just saying this is the silver bullet that has to fix me then yeah. you have a consumer protection problem because suddenly people are getting information and they think that this is the thing that's going to fix them but what if it doesn't Right. And that I think has its own kind of negative effect. So to me, there's like kind of a balance of what are we talking about the use for? What claims are people be allowed to make? What are they allowed to promote or advertise? I have a, I know that this is a little bit of a meandering answer, but I'm very, very skeptical about advertising for really any drugs, any substances whatsoever, but psychedelics, especially I'm a little worried about the um, like combination of the fact that all these doom scroll apps that I use have like a whole psychological profile on me and they might know that I'm depressed and they might know that I have what XYZ disposable income and they know that I live in this particular whatever it is like you know the combination of that kind of uh data slanging that we've got in the current kind of digital world plus um psychedelic advertising that part kind of freaks me out so I do feel like when we're going back to your original question how do we reconcile all these different frameworks like I actually think that we need to look at these macro things, which is like consumer protection, safety, training, and then say, okay, these circumstances are all going to be different based on the what 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 claims people can make, what thing, what expectations we're setting, and then just iterate, like see what happens when we have a medical system and an adult use system in the same state. You know, maybe we'll segue into that in a second. But what happens when we have multiple approaches operating simultaneously? I think that there's a there's been kind of a lack of policy imagination, which yeah. is like, we have to choose one. You have to either right. just decriminalize or you have to just medicalize or you have to do this. And I don't really buy that. I believe that it's possible that all these things can coexist. The reason I don't have a nice package answer for you <laughs> for that question is because like, I don't know how yet, but I'm here yeah. to like figure it out you know, with you and all of our many colleagues that are also trying to solve this problem. Absolutely. The thing that I would highlight after everything you stated there just for the viewers out there, you know, whether it was the coalition director we had on, whether it's the doctors, psychiatrists, people involved in this movement, that every time we ask these questions or we dive into them, there's clearly a lot of thought being put into this. There is a lot of 
potential. There are also a lot of concerns. There are also mm -hmm. a lot of things to address, you know, within this uh, kind of prohibition era, if I can use such language, mm -hmm. uh, yet in society. And uh, there is, I think, general concern across the board for doing this correctly and figuring out a path forward that reduces as much risk and harm as possible, but right. also highlighting that risk and harm is going to be a part of this process, as is the case with I think anything else we've tried from a treatment standpoint, from a medicine standpoint, and so forth. And differently, and to your point about advertising, instead of mm -hmm. stating, you can't sleep, here's a psychedelic, you can't, you know, as these mm -hmm. monotherapeutic interventions, we're actually inviting in a conversation for mm -hmm. this might work here, it might work mm -hmm. better up over here, and it might not work at all over here. Mm -hmm. And the only way to really get involved with that is to be curious about it mm -hmm. and to learn from our mistakes and heal from those mistakes forward looking. And I think one of the things that's challenging about this movement in its current state is there's so much fear baked in. So we want all of this guaranteed certainty out in front totally. of us as totally. a protection. And I think that's the thing that got us caught in prohibition in the first place, right? We were too fearful first, so we put in all these laws, and then after an incredible failure of drug policy over the past, you know, especially post kind of Nixonian era, have discovered that is completely ineffective, and it's had an incredible amount of consequences, not just, you know, socioeconomically uh, for the individuals um, uh, a part of this process, but I think all across America, it, and certainly the world, it's created kind of a nightmare for how to confront mm -hmm. um, the best possible reality and how to move forward. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't know if you want to add anything to that, but that was just kind of top of mind. That Yeah, no, I, I love that. And what I guess what I'll say is two things. One, and this is not a, a correction, but just an additional layer. Like, I like to say that the war on drugs failed on some levels and succeeded on some levels, right? Because I do think that insofar as it was meant to be also a form of kind of social political control that has been wildly successful, but has led to a serious backlash. And I think what's happening now is that the increasingly bipartisan push across the country to look at drug policy reform is showing that you can only operate kind of mask off i guess you could say for so long like once it became clear once we got the numbers and once it became really clear to the public i think this was probably clear to the makers of the policy from the beginning but i think when it became clear to the public that the war on drugs was um a failure according to its stated metrics and a success according to these like shadow metrics of racism and oppression people were like wait a minute we got to figure out how to do this a little bit we got we got to figure out how to do this differently and you know no one no one is saying addiction isn't real or drug harms aren't real like we're all like i think that there's kind of a, a reconciling happening between okay yeah drugs have risks but the way to respond to those risks is not incarceration and so on it's trying to find some alternative option and going back to the first thing you were saying also i would just add that you know i think that there is a very valuable framing when talking about psychedelics especially for people who are looking at them for personal growth for healing for so on um to think of it as um to think of them as as kind of tools to clear the trailheads like so you're like aware that there's ways to the top of a mountain the psychedelics are not going to like slingshot you up there they're not going to put you on a cushy helicopter and take you to the top but they will you know help clear the brush and be like okay here's a trailhead you can choose whether or not you go down and i'm sure that you've talked about this and think about this but like that's where kind of the conversation for me goes beyond the psychedelic itself it's not even about the substance or the experience like those are key threshold points key um milestones in a person's journey for those people that are interested in exploring that but we all know and um i think many of us in the field are tracking this if i if i bet you know this i bet a lot of people you work with know this and about a lot of listeners as well but like at the end of the day like they're a lot of the work that you have to do to do the healing you got to do sober in your day-to-day -day routine mm -hmm. in your day-to-day -day life like that is and that's what i feel like is so interesting about this whole conversation that it's actually psychedelics is so much more about giving people the inspiration and direction to do things themselves 
which is part of why I think when they are effective for, let's say, you know, dealing with substance use disorders or other kinds of treatments, when they when they do have those benefits, often it's not because the thing like the drug itself kind of by itself like changes a significant thing. What it does is it opens people up so they can do this inner work. Suddenly they've like kind of you know, I mean this in a good way, trick themselves into figuring out that there's hope, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm like, yo, we'll take it where we can get it. People, it's, it's, we're really lacking that nowadays. So I'm happy to, to have that opportunity, you know, to have that option for some people. Yeah, absolutely. And what resonates with me is certainly the kind of the way that we approach treatment, you know, within our own program and curriculum mm -hmm. is this spider web concept. Monotherapeutic values have this high intensity in the beginning of the research, the founders of oh. them, cognitive behavioral therapy, SSRIs, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you know, come forward and showcase like, this is it, this is the thing that's gonna fix this. And I think we've been, we become so attuned, at least in my experience within certainly American culture to there's a fix and a solution to your problem that's right here. And you know, you're getting blasted with advertisements and that sort of thing. And we've lost our genuine and general capacity uh, as with this inner body healing framework to uh, succeed on that journey within ourselves. And to your point, I think that's the beauty for us here, at least from a treatment center kind of standpoint about what these medicines can bring about. They're not gonna fix anything in the sense of, you know, changing something in your, maybe it does. You know, maybe for some people, it'll be so eye-opening and moving that it resolves other issues in that kind of moment, but I think for most people, it's, it's to your point, the trailhead. It's, it's showcasing yeah. the journey in front of you, but more beautifully than the Western medicine sense of things. I think historically you come into a treatment center, we kind of you know, create awareness and then we kind of tell what to do in that regard versus allowing the person to explore their own opportunity from their own lens. Uh, and so I think there's a lot of power uh, coming down the chutes here. And, and, and I know right. we're gonna dive into this here shortly, uh, but uh, just to, uh, keep it going uh, before we, we get into this uh, more sure. uh, poignant part of the conversation. Um, so much, you stated a lot, um, at least in the way that I'm not familiar to hearing when it comes to the war on drugs and this type of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that it's such a broad stroke of language that for a lot of people out there on the political spectrum, it can mean one thing or the other, or it just mm -hmm. means you know, one side of history and the other side of history. But in kind of, uh, you've talked about uh, this in the past, but, uh, and, and I'm curious about it because I've never heard of it in context, mm -hmm. but it's striking me as something that's important and missing, at least in my mm -hmm. historical context, uh, about, but, but how did colonization lay mm -hmm. the groundwork for the war on drugs? Uh, in this regard, I'd, I'd never heard that language used until I, I heard it, uh, you and another podcaster uh, mm -hmm. surveying it out there. Um, but if you could just invite in the viewers a little bit into your uh, understanding of what kind of led to this through that lens of colonization. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's a short version, there's a long version. I'll stick with the short version because we have limited time, but I think it'll get the main point across. So the core idea behind this language, colonization laid the groundwork for the war on drugs is that if we look at the um, kind of original intention of the war on drugs, capital W, capital D, the thing that started during you know, the Nixon and Reagan administrations, then what we see is kind of two primary goals. Um, one is ostensibly to reduce the risk and the scourge of drugs on society. And that's where we're like, how do we, you know, the goals there were reduce drug use, um, reduce addiction, all that good stuff. Um, reduce reliance on the cartels, which were less of a factor than are increasing a factor, increasing have been increasingly a factor over the last 50 years. Um, and if you look at just those metrics, like lots of failure, drug use is up, drug use is more concentrated, it's more dangerous, all that good stuff. Um, if you look at the other side of the equation, which is what I was kind of just touching on, you see a social political um, incentives to uh, pass policy that would lead to the war on drugs, the Controlled Substances Act, and so on. The CSA does not exist in a vacuum. This Controlled Substances Act passed in 1971 is the culmination of really like itself 50 years of bills that were passed across the country to start to criminalize um, various drugs starting in the 1930s with cannabis. 
And that itself, 1930s, that itself is a legacy of a process started in the late 1800s of going from, we're going to control, we're going to sell drugs. This is what a lot of large companies were doing, British East India Company, the Dutch East India Company, like you see these large colonial powers, the Dutch, the British, and so on, selling drugs. They're selling opium. They're selling tea and coffee, caffeine. They're, they're selling alcohol. Like that's a major part of their trade system. And it wasn't until the United States itself brought in kind of momentum to criminalize these substances in the late 1800s that we even were having a global conversation about criminalizing drugs. Before that, it was just how do we make money off of it? The reason I start with this conversation around colonization laying the groundwork for the war on drugs is because the logic that ended up permeating the modern war on drugs, that there are social, cultural, political norms that we want to establish in society. And we can do that by restricting human access to certain substances. That concept started during the colonization of the quote unquote new world. There are reports in the late 1500s, early 1600s of the Catholic Church, the Spanish and the Portuguese and other governments seeing the ritual use of plants by native people who are living in Central South America, North America, and identifying that as a essential aspect of the culture where like this relationship to plants, this relationship to these, to the ceremony, to the altered state, that actually being a core component of society in that time. And then the intentional eradication of those links to those traditions as a way to exert power. So some people would go so far as to calling that a cultural genocide because you actually have a robust cultural tradition and practice that exists within a people. Settlers arrive, they see the importance of those practices and they're like, if we want to disrupt this culture, we can't just kill people. We also have to separate them from their culture. This has happened across the world in colonial situations everywhere on the globe. And that happened in Central and South America. So to me, there is a thread between the desire to separate people from their cultural identity by banning, by calling peyote and mushrooms demonic, by saying that the ceremony is demonic, by disassociating it from the kind of virtuous practice of Christianity. And in the process of, I'm sure, you know, people have seen the photos of like native people who had their hair cut or who had, they had to go to boarding school. There's like all these, of course, including, including and not limited to the genocide, the active kind of perpetuation of violence. There's all of these levels where that's all happening. And the, the whole conversation about how that was actually also happening to substances, substance use and cultural use, a lot of that has disappeared because it happened so early. It was one of the earliest things to happen was the separation of those cultures from their plant practices. So to me, colonization laying the groundwork for the war on drugs means colonization is the first time where we see of the, again, quote unquote, you know, so-called new world, like colonization is where you start to see an intentional separation, an intentional kind of wedge being placed between people and these practices that are part of their cultural tradition. To me, that is not so different from the desire in the 60s and 70s to say, oh, Black people who are, or, you know, people, African-American people who are listening to jazz and doing this and that, like, let's, let, what are they using? You know, the Mexican, Amer the Mexican people who are using cannabis, who are associated with marijuana in the 30s, like the Chinese people who are associated with opium in the 80s, in 1980s, or sorry, 1880s. It's the same story, different cultures, different drugs, mm -hmm. but it's just been happening for 500 years. So I'm yeah. just saying this whole conversation didn't start 50 years ago, it started 500 years right. ago. And we're seeing right. kind of that legacy play out over and over and over and over again. Fascinating. And yeah. thank you so much for the short answer. I can only imagine what the longer version is like. But I think that's imperative. I mean, for me and, you know, naively in the Western, you know, traditional sense of things, I, I kind of just see Nixon and then to Reagan and then here we are today. And uh, and so much of history can get buried or lost in these energized discussions and political indifferences. And I'm appreciative of you bringing that close to the viewers so they can hopefully on the other side of these screens, you know, explore, you know, what you've been talking about and, and really the incredible history that's led us to this moment uh, that we're living in today. So very much appreciate uh, right. you showcasing that. Right. Great.
As far as, and you know, time is always of the essence in this, uh, this busy moving world that we're in, but you know, I do want to dive into yeah. you know, one of the things that uh, uh, the, the issue around consumption and, and dive a little bit into the fears and have a discussion about, you know, kind of what I'm seeing kind of on the boots on the ground level. And I talked about in my advocacy in the Senate Finance Committee, um, uh, the, the, those who are resistance, not the right word, those uh, opposed to it or who have a lot of curiosity about how this might get done better uh, through the fears of the, um, you know, past legislation. One of the unfortunate experiences uh, right before I advocated for our side of this bill and measure were these two mothers who came on and talked about how their loved ones went on, you know, the internet and got this God dose, you know, delivered to their doorstep and got an incredible amount of these medicines in their system that ultimately led to their untimely death, jumping off of a balcony and dying in mom's arms and, you know, really mm. tragic instances uh, yeah. that one, I think, we just want to be transparent and talk about because this is the reality of misinformation and, um, you know, uh, educational opportunities that are missed and consumption driven mindsets that frame drug, uh, drug use uh, in general, especially here in uh, certainly here in America, right? You know, for sure. everything daily intoxication. I'd be curious to hear your perspective on marijuana legislation compared to psychedelic mm. legislation. And uh, to be clear, both are monu monumental achievements in the post kind of prohibition era. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think one of the things we got wrong on the side of marijuana legislation via the consumption uh, driven mindset was to state something like marijuana daily for depression. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, for me, that was wrong because I think that marijuana as a medicine or a drug, if we're going to call it that, mm -hmm. it really elicits an experience of at times I feel anxious, I feel mm -hmm. paranoid, I feel, mm -hmm. you know, whatever the case might be. And for me, I think this is often lost on society, but in my light reading of Bob Marley and his history, he <laughs> utilized those experiences as like, oh, I'm anxious for something, you know, uh, marijuana is supposed to be sort of the cherry on top of the ice cream at the mm -hmm. end of the day. Mm -hmm. And now he's going through the process and experiencing anxiety. Mm -hmm. He didn't smoke more weed to deal with the anxiety. In my understanding of, of the literature, he stepped away from marijuana to explore that further. Mm -hmm. So the marijuana created the awareness mm -hmm. and then outside mm -hmm. of that, he mm -hmm. pursued yeah, it. Yeah. And in the, you know, advertising sense of things, it's like, well, I need yeah. to take this daily. And yeah. I think that's incorrect. Um, and we can dive into it together. But also with the psychedelics and plant-based medicines, we are kind of shifting that perspective quite a bit. And just curious about your thoughts in reference to the marijuana legislation and where we're at with psychedelics, because so much of the fear that I heard within the Senate finance community here in Colorado was, this is just like marijuana. Everybody's going to mm -hmm. have access. Everybody's going to be doing this all the time, you know, kind of slippery slope, you know, uh, type logic there. And uh, so, yeah, just curious for the viewers yeah. out there what your insights are into kind of that collision. Yeah, there's a couple of threads that I'll, I'll go down real quick. So the first around, um, maybe I'll talk about the differences between psychedelics and marijuana broadly, and then a little bit more about the policy differences. Um, and which touches on both of the things that you, that you brought on. So first off, I would say that unlike cannabis, psychedelics resist being used daily. And not to say you can't do it, because people do, but <laughs> I think that they resist it. And I think that that is to say that they also resist um, kind of being treated like a um, daily consumable commodity again it happens but uh anecdotally you know i've spent more than half of my life around people who use drugs of all kinds and i have i probably know you know literally 50 times more daily cannabis consumers than i know daily or even near daily mushroom or any other psychedelic consumers and that's partially because of very practical bio biophysiological reasons, including tolerance jumps and how all that stuff happens with different substances. Um, but that doesn't just mean that like it shifts the dynamic around what you know problematic or substance use disorders might look like with those substances. It also means that the way that we think about um, the harms is a little bit different. So whereas you might say you know one of the potential risks of cannabis use is habitual use, that that then goes beyond 
what is actually good for a person and you know mm -hmm. they might know that it's more it's not helping them but they keep doing it that's kind of a classic symptom as i know you know of a substance use disorder um but you can keep smoking weed and it'll keep working it, it working meaning like it'll keep having an effect on your body like you know eventually you can smoke yourself sober but I say that to say that like, or some people experience that where they're like, okay, their tolerance is so high that they're not able to kind of alter their state anymore as a result of it. But the reason I bring that aspect up is because with psychedelics, it's a little bit different. Most psychedelics have such a big tolerance jump that if you try to use it daily or near daily, it just literally stops working. Like what your body doesn't, that like doesn't have an effect. And um, there are other kind of secondary effects that come up now. Not, we all know that negative effects of substance use does not deter all people. So that's like only a limited consolation. And um, the other kind of big practical difference, I would say, or two of the other big practical differences are, one, the way that we've talked about psychedelics as a tool to help people, you know, medically or kind of therapeutically, so often has with it this key element of some sort of guiding facilitation peer support aspect. And that means that from an economic perspective, it's a very different dynamic because you're not just buying a drug storefront, but you're actually buying a service. You're actually paying for seeking a service in addition to access to the thing. So that is a major kind of economic shift or like how I think, you know, the drug will be bought and sold and so on. And then the other kind of key difference I would say is that um, the, like the conversation and this kind of goes to what you're saying around like what the public perception is the conversation about psychedelics is much less uh, i should say there's much less support for the idea that this is a thing you should do every day like with cannabis you can really see how like i've seen people who are dealing with um cancer in particular for whom daily cannabis use is absolutely the best thing for them because of the appetite because of the other aspects appetite sleep support so on um that tempo may not be the tr same for someone who even who's using cannabis for a mental health issue maybe for a mental health mm -hmm. issue actually use it with a with a lower frequency and you can still get the benefits or you only need to use it in acute situations and still get the benefits or i love the anecdote you gave because to me that sounds like treating cannabis like a psychedelic it's like oh it shows mm -hmm. you something so go figure out what that is spend some time on that before you come back to it in some ways that's a form of integration i love that um so I think you really see that conflation of being like, oh, daily use. Oh, it's okay for these people. So it must be okay for these people. So I could see that happening with psychedelics where we're like, oh, like, you know, thankfully there's, and I'm not going to even mention it here, but there are very few, not zero, but very few conversations about daily psychedelic use. And all of the experts that I know can't take that stuff seriously. Like I have yet to hear a person who's like, yeah, you should be taking literally any psychedelic every day like even if it's a, even if you're talking about microdosing like no one even says microdose mushrooms every day at least not mm -hmm. responsible people i haven't i mean not that it doesn't happen people say that but as far as anything regarding the evidence anecdotes like that's just not there that's one aspect which we can go down more and then the other thing i wanted to touch on is the difference between cannabis and psychedelic policy which kind of goes to what the regulators and the legislators are worried about that like we don't want this to be another you know high volume production storefront situation where we have to deal with additional licenses and all of the drama of dealing with who gets what kind of regulatory permissions and like it's a whole thing mm -hmm. and i guess the big you know are people compare psychedelics and cannabis a lot and i think that there's some places where you see similarity notably in like you know the government is trying to figure out how to incorporate a drug or a substance that they've mostly just demonized and avoided having any serious conversations about and now we're like okay we're just going to put it on the market yeah. And I kind of blame the kind of history of the way the government has navigated this question. Um, there's a reason we don't have good information. And it's not because the people who have been smoking it haven't been asking questions. Just because there hasn't been the opportunity for cannabis to actually like, get good research. And now we're trying to do it. But we're doing it racing against like state regulatory or state um, legislative and policy changes. And now we're like at the cusp, maybe, maybe, maybe a federal federal changes there. With, can with psychedelics, because the kind of serious policy conversation started later and it started after more clinical research had been done um, we have a little bit more of a scientific evidence base the problem i think that comes up there is that a good scientific evidence base from clinical double-blind trials or whatever does not always extrapolate well to a state or federal level policy conversation right. you know there's some overlap but not always so i guess we're at what, what i see now is this um move toward figuring out how do we bridge that gap between what we know scientifically research wise 
and what we know we don't know from a policy perspective, those are, you know, those are some distance apart. And we can start to fill in the gaps bit by bit with some of the things we talked about earlier, training, advertising, consumer protection, like that kind of stuff that we're like, well, regardless of the beneficial effects or risks, regardless of where it comes from, like we all know at the very least, if someone's buying something, you should be able to get an accurate ingredient list. Everyone agrees with that one, you know? So I do think that we're kind of in this stage sort of of being like, where do we pull the things that we know we know, plug that stuff in? How do we identify what we know we don't know? hold those questions open and then like iterate as we go. So going just to kind of succinctly get back to your main question, like I think that one of the big differences with cannabis and psychedelics is that there was a desire or kind of this fantasy maybe among the movement with with cannabis that it wouldn't be around among some, I should say. Lots of people predicted this. So I don't mean to undermine that, but that it would just be just another product that as soon as it got into the market, we could just sell like another product. Like you were just saying, it could be part of the consumerification of everything. We can all just become more consumers of more things. Great. Another product to sell. No big deal. Nothing special. Mm -hmm. I, th I think people are rightfully freaked out about that with cannabis. I don't think that cannabis, which is a beautiful, powerful, sacred plant necessarily wants to be treated like a thing that you can just put into any gummy with all the sugar and all the things and just sell it storefront. Like, mm, I don't know. And I think that if the trade-off is we've got to, in order to reduce criminalization, we must have some sort of market solution, then I see that as like this kind of bigger meta problem of how we deal with stuff in society, which is like, oh, so the only way we can have a responsible conversation about this is if we're talking about whether or not we sell it in a market. Okay. So that just brings all the baggage of the market, dealing with right. late stage capitalism, all the stuff. <laughs> All of that is going to be true with psychedelics. The dynamics is going to be different. It might not be storefront because there's guides. It might not be just a sold product because you can't do it every day like you do with other stuff. But I think that the concerns about corporatization, the like lower quality control standards, the weird, sketchy advertisement, all that stuff that's coming with cannabis. Yeah, we're going to have to deal with all of that. Yeah. Beautifully stated. And... <laughs> You know, to me, it, it, I, I guess the, to recapitulate, it sounds like with the psychedelic movement, the research is a little bit ahead of the policy, and that's positive to think about, right? Because we have a little bit more to anchor into in our understanding of the delivery of the medicines. And with cannabis, we put in policy first, and it raced ahead of the research that's now kind of trailing it. And to the notion of kind of responsible use in that regard, in a perfect world, if it's Izzy's world right now, I don't know if there's a clear answer for it, but how would you, on the side of cannabis, get that much closer to where the psychedelic movement is at from policy and research? And in this kind of perfect world scenario for the viewers out there, uh, how would you bring those two uh, considerations closer together in a way that, uh, at least at the level of the state uh, participants that I've been around, fear that the market is going to continue to outpace cannabis to which there is no ability to bring that research close to it mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think this is a big conversation a big question that you just asked but i'll say that one i don't think i'm as worried about it as some people are not because i am so excited about the possibility of the corporatization of psychedelia um i'm not to be clear but because i feel about like in some ways <laughs> In some ways, the attempt to control the market of these substances and the kind of cultivation and the distribution of some of these substances, in particular the plants, you know, even though I'm like really committed to this mission of making it, figuring out how to make it as, you know, properly designed as possible for this post-prohibition area that we're hoping to, you know, step into. Um, I think it's kind of futile. And I, I say that not to undermine my own work, but to say that, like, we're talking about plants. Like, at the end of the day, a lot of the, especially, you know, going back to with the Colorado example in particular, like, talking about plants that grow in a lot of places. Like, as long as home grow was present for all of the cannabis regulatory changes and all the cannabis legal changes, you know, we can be really upset about and probably should be skeptical about the multi-state operators, all of the corporatization and the monopolization of the cannabis industry. And at the end of the day, most people could grow it themselves. And it's a little bit, you know, it's expensive, requires some skill, not everyone can do it. But 
we can do that. We don't have to rely on these large companies to get it. And I think I feel the same way about psychedelics. Like I think that this is going to be different with synthetics. It's its own whole conversation for sure. But for mushrooms, for San Pedro, for other things, like we will, there will always be people who grow, who grow mm-hmm. them. And as long as the policy shifts ensure protection for the cultivators and for the people who are giving that to their community, sharing that with their community, then I think we're going to be okay. Like there will be a need for some people for a super pharmaceuticalized, super dialed product. You know, I saw this a lot with medical cannabis when recreational or adult use cannabis swept the country. One of the losses that happened, although it did increase access to most people, was what one might call like medical grade. That's kind of a euphemism, but medical like tested products. And for people who have cancer or a compromised immune system, they actually can't just go to the open market and get a gummy. They actually need something that has a higher quality control standard. So I see that similarly here. Like, I don't want to lose the possibility of having a very, very precise formulated product. I think that that's really good. I just think that we can't only have that. We also need to be able to grow mushrooms at home, you know? So I think that like, to me, that's the balance. As long as we can have those things at the same time, then like the rest is going to happen at the pace that it happens. It's a little bit of a delusion to think that we should, and I'm not saying you're saying this at all, but it's a little bit of a delusion to think that like, we have to wait for the right amount of research because once we have that, then we can know it's safe. I'm like, we can do that and we should do that from a regulatory perspective. Like, I don't expect the government to be making moves on things that they don't feel pretty secure about. Totally understandable. Medical institutions, same. Like, healthcare, go through the processes for sure. But like, literally millions and millions and millions of people have used all these things. And we have a, we, we're not coming from nothing with the risks. This isn't a new molecule that was invented yesterday. We right. have like pretty good naturalistic evidence about what kinds of risks to be concerned about. As long as they're being compiled, as long as they're being shared, like, let's do that. The one caveat I would say to that is I do think that with better data capture, we do get better information. So post-legalization of cannabis, I think we have better information now about the risks of cannabis because there isn't the same stigma to studying it. So I do think that we might not, there, like new things may not emerge, but we may learn more about the kinds of risks and benefits that exist with psychedelics because we're actually able to get good information and don't have to be operating under the kind of shadow of stigma all the time. So I do think that, you know, to your question, like moving toward a balance between naturalistic observational evidence, which to me is enough to say, well, we probably shouldn't criminalize the behavior. We can probably say that right now. I don't need more evidence to say we shouldn't be criminalizing people growing on mushrooms. You're not going to convince me otherwise. But if you're talking about, should you be able to make claims about treating something? Should people be able to use it if they're medical providers with expectations? Does insurance cover you for malpractice? Like, yeah, let's get some evidence for that. Those are good things we want to have more details for. So I kind of see it as just multi-tier. Like, to me, these things are not mutually exclusive. Those things can occur at the same time. It's complicated. Like, it's, it kind of breaks your brain to think, how do we have a licensed framework and also an unlicensed framework? You know, thinking about 122 in Colorado, it's like, the regulators are going to have a fun and complex time over the next two years figuring out how do you have a regulated and unregulated system at the same time? I personally love that question. Like we should yeah. have both. There are going to be different expectations and norms for the providers and da da da. Like, but let's solve that problem. Like, why would we have to limit our imagination to saying you only get one option, which we know doesn't cover all the bases? Wonderful. And the, 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 and this is truly wonderful. The bow that I would put on that too, as well, again, for the viewers is like people like you is the deep, deeply immersed in the movement and, uh, you know, for the past few decades are thoughtfully considering this. And I think the public has such a reference point of, you know, maybe hippie culture, maybe, you know, the LSD slipping over the gates of research into the public sphere and, you know, tune in and shut out and all that, you know, type of language that exists that this is the core of the movement, but actually the core of the movement is is quite considerate of all of its possibilities and all of the potential consequences uh, that come with this. And as diligently and as thoughtfully as, as we can be within this movement, trying to answer really challenging questions and bring forward something positive, um, but it's not going to be without negotiation and without its consequences. And, and for the sake of time here, I, I, we're, we're going to have to have some coffee or something in the future is at some point, because, um, I just want to continue to pick your brain, uh, about all of this and certainly just want to know you more as a person as well, too. Um, you're, you are 
a fascinating and inviting person to have a conversation with. And so I'm grateful for this experience. But to take us out here, maybe for a last question, I know I gave you like 100 questions or whatever on a Word spreadsheet, but you know, time is what it is. <clears throat> I'm very excited about where we're at. I see its possibilities. I see the opportunity for negotiation in a way that we've not had in the public sphere, certainly at the level of the federal government, you know, state, local municipalities. So this is very exciting times, but around, you know, kind of where we're at and you being more immersed in it in a way than I could possibly be at this point, what it, are you feeling that this movement in the direction and where we're at is sustainable? And mm. uh, if it is, what would you caution those who are mm. speaking to the public uh, in the future about so we don't disrupt its sustainability mm. and forward momentum as a movement? Yeah, there's like a, a nice art of forward momentum, a balancing forward momentum with like the, you know, getting your chin out in front of your knees kind of situation <laughs> where we're like a little too excited. Yeah, no, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that it's sustainable because it's self-regulating. And what I mean by that is like, and I don't want to, you know, I don't wish ill upon anyone. And also, I think without naming names, the kind of large economic shifts that are happening within the industry right now, the kind of what we're seeing around um, different companies shifting services or getting closed or merging or acquired, like you kind of see this kind of self-correcting mechanism where there's only a limited carrying capacity that exists within the industry. Like there's only so much money to go around. There's only so much, there's only so much expertise and people and time. So it's not always sustainable, but it like the system kind of forces it to be sustainable by limiting when things were moving too fast. Um, so I do believe in kind of an inner, oh God, I can't believe I'm saying this, but kind of an inner healing intelligence, I guess you could say even of that kind of larger ecosystem to say like, oh, well, when things go beyond what they're actually able to carry, like there will be an adjustment. Um, and I do think that there is a certain level of um, like, like so, so what I mean by that is like acutely, I would say, yeah, like I would say the hype is a bit unsustainable right now, like the story about how cool and beneficial and potentially helpful psychedelics may or may not be like all of that stuff like it's probably a little bit ahead of what the science actually says and what we really know and what's really great to say but if i zoom out i'm like oh that will be adjusted though like there will come a time like that line can't sustain itself that partial mm -hmm. truth can't sustain itself so in that sense i see it as sustainable and to kind of more directly answer your question i do think that there would be a lot of benefit to um really holding both the potential benefit and these like risks and concerns and probably a more kind of nuanced detailed conversation about what we do about those things i think that what i see is concerns about a lot of simultaneous concerns that need to be reconciled people want increased access to people who are marginalized people also want the research to slow down and be better because of ethical concerns, because of concerns of violations or abuse or boundary or boundary issues and so on. Um, we can do both of those things, but we need to be aware that there's tensions that like reducing the cost for the patient means may mean reducing the capacity of this modality to be something that a provider can get a lived income off of. Do we get the money from the government? Do we? So there's all of these kind of questions that come up when we're dealing with like the tensions, the tensions and values that I think a lot of us are holding. And I don't think that means we shouldn't hold it, be with attention. I think it just means that we need to be aware that like everything is a series of trade-offs. And to me, sustainability within the, within the movement would just be that acknowledging that everything is a trade-off. There is no, there is no like untainted option like every single direction we can take is going to have risks and it's going to have potential benefits and you know going to something you were saying earlier and maybe as a way to kind of close this phase of the conversation is like yes there are absolutely risks to bringing these things into society decriminalizing especially without good education harm reduction crisis response we didn't even touch on that but there should be 
massive government investment into education, harm reduction, and crisis response. Like to me, that's very obvious that that shouldn't be done by civil society. That scrappy philanthropy-backed nonprofit should not be holding that public health burden. That should be something that the government should be involved in paying for. Same with recovery services. Like there should be so many more resources allocated to this if it doesn't have to come from private dollars of philanthropy. That's just my opinion. But I say that to say that like while we are moving towards decriminalization, I can say, yes, there's risks. Yes, we should have better services and a safety net to support that. And the risk of us maintaining illegality is still greater than those things. Like I can hold both of those truths. Like just that there's risk does not mean that it's not less worth it. And you know, you see, we're not gonna go down this rabbit hole right now because it's a dumb conversation, but you see this a lot come up with Ibogaine, with Ebola mm -hmm. and Ibogaine and addiction and substance use disorder treatment where it's like, there's very real health risks with Ibogaine and Ebola. There's very real cardio risks. There's very, very real trauma risks. Like people do get re-triggered and get all kinds of stuff happen when they have, you know, an improperly held Ibogaine or Ebola experience. But is the risk of having that come online lower or greater than the risk of having right now no really effective funded solutions for substance use disorders and then, you know, just having record and increasing records you know record numbers of people dying of overdose i don't know that is a trade-off you know so anyway that's a bit of a morbid place to end but that's it's real everything you just stated i think is so valuable and i have always advocated for transparency within treatment culture right never over promising and under delivering mm -hmm. this is what we can do this is the delicacy in it here are the outcomes and the challenges associated with your loved one's journey moving forward uh, in this regard and being transparent about this and open-minded, open heart, open mind towards its possibilities, but also towards its risks, I think invites in a discussion rather than pushing people away from the discussion um, into their own perspective or what they thought right. was going to be the reality of all of this. And so, you know, I, I very much appreciate the transparency and holding space for the delicacy of our situation uh, globally and certainly as a society here in America and how to balance this discussion. It cannot just be a, uh, I think you would share this and correct me if I'm wrong, it can't be like completely illegal to everything is legal now all of a yeah, sudden. There totally, has to be 100%. a balance in here and a discussion to arrive at the least amount of harm with the greatest positive societal benefit at the end of the day. And it's going to be a discussion for, I would imagine, decades, if not centuries, to come in front of us. Mm -hmm. And um, so very excited and, and very pleased with your view of this, your approach to this, and your insights into it as well. We will have to do coffee or this again sometime in the future. I, I certainly hope to cross your path again, Izzy. This has yeah. been really uh, empowering, hopefully, for the viewers and their understanding, but certainly as somebody who's getting closer to the movement uh, with a lot less history than you, uh, it's just exciting to continue to meet professionals out there thinking about these things on behalf of society and trying to nurture and balance uh, a challenging discussion at times. And, and with that, I'm hopeful, you know, maybe you can uh, kind of take us out. What exciting projects are you working on? Where maybe uh, would you, you know, like to point the viewers as to resources or anything of that that you would like to take us out with um, uh, that you feel passionate about at this time? Yeah, no, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Maybe I'll just close by, by plugging our conference. So um, we'll be having a conference in Denver, actually, you know, at the end of June, which I'm really excited about Psychedelic Science 2023. So that's happening. Um, and there will be just way more to do than you can possibly imagine. Lots of stages. It'll be like a festival where you have to make really bad choices between the two artists that you really want to see, but with kind of like a ner nerdy version of that. So um, that that's happening in June, which I'm really excited about. And then I think the other thing that I'd like to give a shout out to is, you know, there's a whole kind of ecosystem out there of people who are working on all these different aspects of the field. And I'd really, you know, especially for people who are interested in the law or legal work, um, I'd invite them to check out the Psychedelic Bar Association. It's just the psychedelicbar.org. Um, it's an organization that I co-founded with some colleagues of mine that is really around like kind of um, cultural onboarding, you could say. Uh, of people in the legal field of how to think about some of these like very big, very complex questions that we're all navigating all the time. So for them a shout out. Um, and yeah, besides that, like I think that this year, a lot of this year is gonna be, okay, now that we're a couple of years away from the beginning of this state level projects, it's gonna be what 
what have we learned in the last couple of years? And I think Colorado as a state, you know, with the regulatory agency or the regulatory board and so on, is going to be sorting through a lot of those questions. Like, what have we learned over the last couple of years? And um, what do we want to be the ones to learn, you know, as we, as the state kind of moves toward whatever this next phase of the paradigm is. So, um, yeah, thanks again. I hope to see you in person at some point. I would love to cross paths again, or I'm happy to join this again. And we can spend an hour and a half on any of the things that we talked about today. So I'm, I'm happy to go all the way into the details. Yeah, well, you, I, I was debating because I, I, there's so much proximity for me, and I'm, and uh, you know, I don't want to sound like too privileged here, but I've, I've been so blessed to be in front of so many individuals here in the state, kind of pushing forward this movement that I feel like, oh, I don't have to go to that psychedelic conference in Denver or whatever, but right. uh, absolutely, if uh, Maps is throwing it and you're going to be there as part of that, uh, I, I'm going to stand my ticket uh, today and, and hopefully see you around there at that time. I, but, think, uh, I think it'll be, I don't think you'll regret it. There'll be a lot. There's literally like nine stages simultaneously every day. Like it's going to be overwhelming, but the, in the in the good way, I hope. And we'll yeah. have some really good conversations about some of these policy questions too that will be happening on the policy stage. We have an amazing society stage where we'll have like a whole half day just about different forms of harm reduction. So yeah, yeah, I, I hope to see you there. I'll say that. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Izzy, for your time. Continued success in all that you do. Grateful for your representation out there in the world. And uh, yeah, looking forward to next time. Until then. Thank you so much. Till next time, then. All right, everybody. That's a wrap for this special episode of Finding Peaks. Thank you so much for joining us today. And my sincere hope at the end of the day, as I reiterated throughout the episode, is that you can hear that this movement is thoughtful, it's considerate, it's concerned and it's thinking about how to deliver this in the most positive, beneficial way to society. And so, you know, to Ismail and uh, Izzy, as we were referring to him throughout the episode, again, thank you so much for being here, for all the people out there. Uh, hopefully we can find extended clips on all the social medias, the Facebook, the Twitters, the TikToks, all the things. And as I always state, I believe our social media assets are gonna be far more positive than the general spectrum. So check us out.